0: Hey, this is Keegan with a quick reminder, if you enjoy Down Home Fear and want to help keep the show running, please visit www.downhomefear.com and click the Support the Show tab. I've made some changes so DHF is no longer using the Patreon platform that I plugged at the beginning of the last episode, but you can still support the show via PayPal, which does not require an account or membership to use. So again, check it out at downhomefear.com under the support the show section. Thanks. a podcast that explores true crimes and strange happenings of the American South. My name is Keegan, and this is episode 12 of the show. This will be the second part of my ongoing series regarding the story of Casey and Kaylee Anthony. Part one of this series was pretty high on the weirdness scale, We had made-up nannies, we had Casey blatantly lying to police at nearly every turn, but part two takes it all to a whole nother level. A disturbing content warning right up front. This part of the series goes in-depth into the discovery of the remains of Kaylee, who was just two years old at the time of her death, so this may be upsetting for some listeners. There are also brief mentions of sexual abuse and suicide, so keep that in mind if you're sensitive to those topics. You may want to avoid this installment. I strongly recommend that you listen to part one of this series before listening to this part. Part one goes very in-depth into the initial months following Kaylee's disappearance, and this episode picks up right where we last left off. Just to give a broad level overview of this story so we are all on the same page, on June 16th, 2008, a 22-year-old single mother, Casey Anthony, was seen by her father, George Anthony, leaving her parents' house, which was located in Orlando, Florida. She is accompanied by her two-year-old daughter, Kaylee Anthony, And this is the last time anyone besides Casey sees Kaylee alive. On July 15th, 2008, a month later, Cindy Anthony, Casey's mother and Kaylee's grandmother, calls 911 and she reports Kaylee missing. Casey initially tells police that her daughter was kidnapped by a babysitter named Zenaida Fernandez-Gonzalez on the evening of June 16th and that she had spent the intervening 31-day period searching for her daughter on her own. This story, obviously, didn't fly with law enforcement, and Casey was quickly arrested for child neglect. The babysitter, who she had claimed had taken her child, was confirmed to be nothing more than a fabrication, a made-up story meant to draw attention away from Casey herself. Several months later, on December 11th, 2008, and this is what we'll get into in detail on today's episode, Kaylee's skeletal remains are found. By this time, Casey had been charged with first-degree murder, among several other serious charges. After a highly publicized trial and much speculation about her guilt, on July 5th, 2011, Casey was found not guilty of first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, And aggravated manslaughter of a child. She avoids having to do any serious time in prison, but she is still found guilty of lying to police, and for this, she gets a relatively light sentence, all things considered. Within just a couple of short weeks, Casey walked free and has gone on to spend the ensuing years trying to fly under the radar there are several key characters who are important to remember before we go too much further into today's installment. The first, of course, is Casey Anthony, who was 22 years old at the time of her arrest and the mother of Kaylee Anthony. She was an attractive middle-class woman who was living at her parents' house during that summer of 2008. The second main character is Kaylee Anthony, who was two years old. The daughter of Casey Anthony, Kaylee died under mysterious circumstances in the summer of 2008. To this day, it is unclear exactly what happens to her and how she died. The third main character is George Anthony. This is Casey's father, and he was the last person, apart from Casey, who was confirmed to have seen Kaylee alive. Then we have Cindy Anthony, who was Casey's mother. She had a strained relationship with Casey, but would go on to adamantly defend her innocence. Outside of the Anthony family, we have Jeff Ashton, one of the attorneys who prosecuted Casey Anthony. He's an experienced legal professional who at the time of the trial was on the cusp of retirement. The book that he wrote about this trial, Imperfect Justice, is the primary source of information that I used while researching this series. The last main character is a man named Jose Baez, Casey's main defense attorney throughout her initial incarceration and the actual trial. He is an attorney who was virtually unknown prior to the Casey Anthony trial. And he is regarded by some as being unethical in his approach to this case. All right, so we'll get started with the main part of the episode now. This picks up right where we left off in August of 2008. Casey has been arrested for child abuse and her daughter Kaylee is still missing at this point in time. of 2008, Jeff Ashton formally joins the prosecution team working against Casey Anthony. Ashton's claim to fame is that since the 1980s, he has become a pioneer in the use of forensic science in the courtroom. This is actually why he was originally asked to join the prosecution team. Upon joining the prosecution, Ashton immediately contacts a man named Arpad Voss, a forensic anthropologist working at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee. He is an expert in odor analysis. Ashton contacted him because they still needed proof that the odor in the trunk of the white Pontiac that Casey had been driving when Kaylee was last seen was indeed the odor of decomposition. According to the book I read, odor analysis research is actually more complicated than DNA analysis. For one thing, there are all sorts of practical issues with sample collection. For example, how do you capture smell? What concentration of the odor is optimal for analysis? After some failed attempts to collect a proper odor sample, the forensics lab in Florida, sent a sample to Voss who determined that the odor in the car was consistent with that of a decomposing body. He did tests to determine this, and also subjectively stated that he recognized the smell immediately as the smell of death, or odor mortis, which is the Latin term. He also determined that it was not the smell of rotting garbage or a road-killed squirrel, two alternative rumors that had been circulating. There is also a byproduct of decomposition called grave wax that was found in the trunk of the car. The proper term for that is something that I'm probably going to mispronounce, but I'll take a shot at it, and it's um, adiposari or perhaps adiposer, (laughs) I really have no idea on that one, but the colloquial term for it is grave wax, and it was found in the trunk of the Pontiac. Voss also determined, and this is a key point, that the trunk had a very high level of chloroform gas lingering in it. The chloroform traces were actually higher than any other odor traces in the trunk And Voss did note that it is possible for chloroform compounds to naturally occur during decomposition, but not in the levels that were as high as the ones found in the trunk of the car. In fact, he said that the levels of chloroform gas were thousands of times higher than they would have been from a decomposing body alone. Meaning that in addition to whatever was decomposing in the trunk of the car, there was chloroform Uh, that had been introduced by unnatural causes. The FBI later also confirmed the presence of chloroform in the trunk. With this new information, the police searched through the Anthony's computers, looking to see if they had purchased any chloroform online. Several references were found in these computer searches to chloroform, And investigators determined that in March, about three months before Kaylee's disappearance, someone had searched the phrase, how to make chloroform, in a computer search engine. To be clear, for this next part, I do have to criticize Ashton's book a little bit, because the wording regarding this next section that he used is a bit vague. He says that on the afternoon that the How to Make Chloroform search was made, Cindy Anthony was at work, and George Anthony was not actively employed, but was working a 10-hour shift on, quote, one of the afternoons the search had been done. And I thought this was odd, because in this otherwise extremely detailed chapter of the book, full of praise and admiration for Voss, and the cutting-edge computer forensic technology used, Ashton does not clarify how they knew the chloroform search was made in the afternoon and does not clarify if George Anthony was or wasn't home when the actual how-to-make-chloroform search was made. He just says that on one of the days when those searches had been made, George had apparently been working a 10-hour shift. Ashton also contacted the FBI for their opinion on the hair samples found in the trunk. They had something called root banding, the FBI found. Basically, root banding is a dark blemish that occurs at the root of a person's hair post-mortem. According to Ashton, this type of banding has only been found in hair recovered from dead bodies. But even the FBI expert who found this wouldn't say that the hair had absolutely come from a dead body. After doing some further tests, they found that the hair in the trunk of the car with banded roots was definitely that of Kaylee's. So they knew that Kaylee's hair was in the trunk of the car and that it had apparent signs of decomposition suggesting that Kaylee had been killed and placed in the trunk of the vehicle. Though this is not necessarily absolutely confirmed. So add that to the continuously growing list of circumstantial evidence regarding this case. Let's get back to Casey for a little bit. A very interesting and very strange character who became introduced to this already very strange story was a so-called bounty hunter named Leonard Padilla. Padilla had agreed to pay Casey Anthony's bond in exchange for being able to monitor her at her family's house. He paid for her bond and then confusingly returned her to jail almost immediately after, and then a different anonymous local guy once again bailed Casey out Casey Anthony would be in and out of jail between August 21st and October 14th when she was finally indicted on the murder and child abuse charges for which there was no bond. While Casey was continuing to move in between relative freedom and jail, police and nonprofit volunteers continued to comb through the central Florida, area looking for Kaylee's body. While kidnapping leads were still fruitlessly being investigated, the operation had largely turned to a body recovery mission. Remember that this area of Florida, especially during the summer, is like a jungle. It is extremely dense with vegetation and this impeded search teams, not to mention that the very Warm, humid climate allowed for quick decomposition, which made the investigation a race against time. Investigators continued trying to learn more about the real Casey. All they had heard from her up to this point were lies and fabrications, stories that Casey had invented in order to paint herself in a sympathetic light, but that had little to no basis in reality. For September through October, investigators turned attention to interviewing Casey's friends and extended family to try to get a better picture of who she really was. Casey's uncle, a man named Rick Plazea, spoke with investigators and had nothing but bad things to say about her. He echoed similar statements that others had provided about her being a thief and a liar. He also confirmed the investigators' earlier suspicions about a custody battle brewing beneath the rising tensions between Cindy and Casey. So if you'll remember from part one, some of the investigators who arrived on the scene on that initial night in July when Kaylee had been reported missing— They thought that it seemed like there was a lot of strife between Cindy and Casey, and one of the investigators even directly mentioned that he thought there may have been a custody battle um, starting to come up on the horizon for the Anthony family. Rick also speculated that Casey resented Cindy because Kaylee liked Cindy more than her. When it came to Cindy Anthony's level of denial when it came to Casey, because remember that Cindy initially was very skeptical. She was even the person who called 911 in the first place when she realized that Kaylee was in danger. She had done a 180. She had went from being very suspicious of her daughter to seemingly believing anything that her daughter told her. And advocating her innocence. Rick recalled a story from 2005 when Cindy and the rest of the Anthony family came to visit him for his wedding. Casey, during this time, was visibly pregnant with Kaylee, and when Rick mentioned it to his sister, Cindy, Cindy said she had no idea what he was talking about saying that her daughter, Casey, had just been putting on a little bit of weight. Rick said that it was clear at this time that Casey was about seven months pregnant, so we're not talking like a little baby bump here. She was very visibly pregnant. But Cindy also seemed to be under the impression that her daughter was still a virgin, and Casey would have been in her early 20s at this point, and I mean, in American society in the 21st century, I would say that most people are sexually active by that point. So this this seems to be a bit delusional as well. Also, a strange thing to remember is that Cindy is a registered nurse, so you would think that she's very familiar with what pregnancy looks like and how a woman's body appears in that last, um, I guess, third trimester period. Rick additionally noted that Casey had a knack for taking small details and then twisting them around to fit into whatever narrative she preferred, regardless of the truth. While this is all troubling and fits into the pattern we have observed in part one of this series, Ashton and the investigators knew that it would most likely not be admissible in court. Jesse Grund and his family briefly took care of Kaylee. Remember, Jesse is the ex fiance who decided to stick around for a couple of months after Kaylee's birth, even after learning that the child wasn't really his. His father, Richard Grund, Also ended up babysitting Kaylee a few times, and he spoke with police and mentioned that when he pressed Casey on whether or not she'd finally been able to find a babysitter, her response was really odd. Richard Grund is quoted as saying, Rather than just saying, yeah, I've got that worked out, she said, yeah, I found this lady, Zenaida Gonzalez, and she watched my friend Jeffrey Hopkins' son Zachary, and Zachary and Kaylee love to be together, so this will all work out great. Richard thought this was odd because it seemed like a very excessive amount of detail, and he said that this is when he first realized that something was up with Casey and she had a tendency to tell stories And, quote, had a little problem with exaggeration. I want to spend a little bit of time during today's story just talking a bit more about Cindy Anthony. She was said to have a sort of iron grip on the Anthony household. According, once again, to Richard Grund, anything she said goes. She seemingly would not acknowledge the fact that Casey was engaging in illegal or immoral behavior. In the weeks leading up to Kaylee's disappearance, there had already been a violent confrontation between Casey and Cindy. Uh, Jesse Grund said that Casey's brother, Lee Anthony, had confided in him about this after Casey was initially arrested. Neighbors also reported overhearing very loud arguments between Casey and Cindy during June and May of that year. It would appear that Cindy and Casey did not have the harmonious sort of relationship that Cindy would like to have people believe. By the end of September, Jeff Ashton and his colleagues had an issue on their hands. Casey Anthony had been arrested for child abuse, and due to a Florida state law, she had to be tried, i.e. brought to trial, within 180 days of her arrest or else the charges would be thrown out even if new evidence eventually surfaced. The prosecutors were convinced that Kaylee was dead, so they did not want to go after Casey for a lesser charge of child abuse. Due to the principle of double jeopardy, which is a legal principle in the United States that states a person cannot be tried for the same crime twice, the prosecutors were unsure if they would be able to charge her with child abuse and then again at a later point for murder when new evidence about Kaylee's disappearance emerged. So, for example, they could successfully convict Casey of child abuse but then have Kaylee's body later be found with clear signs of murder on Casey's part and not be able to charge her for murder. One thing was certain. They were beginning to run out of time. Nearly three months had already passed, and they couldn't wait around indefinitely if they intended to bring Casey to justice. Ashton writes in his book that he believed Kaylee had been deliberately murdered, He did not buy the theory that Kaylee had died in an accidental drowning, and Casey had been trying to cover it up all along. However, the only murder weapon they had was the traces of chloroform found in the trunk of the Pontiac. Ashton suggested that Casey may have chloroformed Kaylee in order to go out and party with her friends, which I think is ridiculous and I don't really know what leaps in logic he took, perhaps because he was so closely involved with the case and he had such a strong personal investment in the case because he himself was a father. I just don't see the events going down that way. I don't think Casey took a chloroform rag and placed it over her daughter's mouth and then caused her to suffocate or asphyxiate due to um, having the chloroform in her face. And then later, as we'll find out, the prosecution would also suggest that Kaylee had had duct tape placed over her mouth and nose. I think that Casey is definitely not entirely innocent with her daughter's disappearance and her daughter's death. But I don't think that She took these measures to kill her daughter. And I'll talk more later about what I think actually did happen. I have an explanation from Jeff Ashton in his own words. So this is from page 142 of Imperfect Justice. And it's him explaining why they decided to prosecute Casey for first-degree murder even with having such little evidence at their disposal. So I will read this passage now. The bottom line, we believed she'd killed her daughter, and we couldn't wait for a body to be found. We had to go with what we had. Here were the facts. We had a young mother who left home with her daughter, and from that point on appeared to begin a new life without her. She got a tattoo expressing her feeling that she was living a beautiful life. She lied repeatedly about her daughter's absence for months and, instead of looking for her, went out partying. When she was called out for her lies, she was uncooperative and continued to tell more lies. She blamed her daughter's disappearance on a babysitter who did not exist. She was offered the opportunity on two occasions, first by Sergeant John Allen in the interview at Universal Studios, and later by Cindy Anthony during one of her visits to Casey in jail to adopt an accident account of what had happened to her daughter, and she scoffed at it both times. And of course, she was driving a car that contained a very suspicious odor along with one of her daughter's hairs and a high level of chloroform in the trunk. There you have it, Jeff Ashton recounting his thought process when it came to pursuing first-degree murder charges against Casey Anthony, you can see that there is a litany of circumstantial evidence and things that really, if you read between the lines, of course are very sketchy, very disturbing, very suspicious, but that for... A court of law to be able to convict someone and sentence them to life in prison, or even sentence them to death, that's a whole other animal. October fourteenth, two 2008. The grand jury hearing was held. A grand jury hearing is a process through which a person is formally indicted for a crime. And the jury reached its conclusion within two hours after the hearing. The primary charge against Casey Anthony was first-degree murder. Additionally, there were charges of aggravated child abuse, aggravated manslaughter of a child, and four counts of lying to law enforcement. When Casey was brought into custody, she was calm and cooperative and refused to speak to anyone without her attorney, Jose Baez, present. After all of this, Cindy Anthony still refused to accept that Kaylee was dead. She continued to go on television, criticizing police for not searching for her granddaughter. Now, from here on out, we're going to start seeing a lot more of Jose Baez, Casey's defense attorney, And in Jeff Ashton's book, he really doesn't hold back on his contempt and dislike for Bayez. He paints him as, as being very petty and overbearing in his requests for information that the prosecution was not even obligated to provide, but they still did anyway. And he also criticizes him for intentionally trying to stir up media controversy throughout his involvement with the case. And in a few instances, straight up calls him unethical. So it's uh, he's a he's a really slippery guy, Jose Baez, and he um, he he's a real kind of I guess what you would say uh, maybe maybe a Saul Goodman type if you watch uh, the, the television show Breaking Bad. He's a pretty sleazy dude. We'll, we'll get into uh, a couple examples of that in, in just a little bit. It's rumored that Casey funded her defense team by selling photos of herself and her daughter to ABC News for $200,000. That's just a rumor. It was never confirmed, but Ashton does bring it up a couple of times, and I see it mentioned a lot on online discussions involving this case. On December 3rd, 2008, the state attorney actually made the decision not to pursue the death penalty against Casey, but I'll tell you right now that this decision was reversed shortly after, and we'll discuss more about that in just a little bit as well. On December 11th, Jose Baez requested a continuance from the judge who was presiding over the case, and therefore the 180-day speedy trial rule was waived, giving both sides more time to prepare for the upcoming trial. And in a very, very ironic twist of fate, on that same day when they were asking for the continuance from the judge... December 11th, 2008, Kaylee's body was finally found. Let's rewind a little bit back to August 11th, 2008. A meter reader, Roy Cronk, calls 911 from his home to say that he has been working in the Chickasaw Park neighborhood, and after taking meter readings on Suburban Drive, where the Anthony house was located, he ducked into a secluded wooded area to urinate. While doing this, he noticed a suspicious gray vinyl bag partially submerged in the swamp and a white object near the bag that appeared to be a human skull. The 911 operator thanked him for the call. The next day, Roy Cronk called back and repeated his discovery And again, the operator thanked him and suggested this time that he call the TIPS hotline as they were coordinating all kinds of details and leads about the Anthony case. On August 13th, Kronk called a third time asking to confirm that an Orange County sheriff's deputy was still coming to meet him. The deputy did eventually arrive and Kronk showed him exactly where he'd seen the suspicious bag. The bag was still there, and the deputy visually inspected it from about six feet away, but never touched or manipulated it. He began bickering with Kronk, saying there was no way that he could have seen a skull earlier, because the remains wouldn't have been skeletonized by that point. Another deputy arrived and didn't even bother going into the swamp to check the bag himself. They wrote the finding off as another false lead. Now, months later, we hear from Roy Cronk once again. He was revisiting the swampy wooded area behind the Anthony's home. When he calls his boss saying that the same suspicious bag was still there in the thick vegetation behind Suburban Drive, and that now he was positive that he saw human remains. The police were once again alerted to the bag. This time, finally, the cops took it seriously, and by 9.38 a.m. December 11, 2008, a crime scene investigation team confirmed that the remains of a child had been found near Suburban Drive. Kronk had been back in the neighborhood checking meters as usual. He claimed that he just happened to cross the bag once again by coincidence, but apparently he had mentioned to his co-worker who was riding with him in the company truck that day, I just hit the lottery. The swamp was very thick, and investigators said that it would have been very difficult to access, let alone see an object obscured by the dark, murky water. The vegetation was so dense that it was said you could have missed the bag if you were off by even a few feet. The swamp was clearly used as a dumping ground for garbage and lawn waste. It was thick with poison ivy, venomous snakes, and dense mud. The skull had rolled out of the bag when Kronk prodded the bag before investigators arrived. The skull still had some hair partially attached. The skull was embedded in a layer of decomposing leaves, and a strip of duct tape was found in the clump of leaves nearby, but not attached to the skull. The rest of the skeletonized remains had been scattered by animals and flooding, Based off of the decomposition, investigators determined that Kaylee's body had been fully skeletonized by early July, just a couple of weeks after she had disappeared. The body had been wrapped in a Winnie the Pooh blanket, which is like a child's cartoon character, and after being wrapped in the blanket had been stuffed inside two garbage bags, and then those bags were stuffed in a laundry bag. So there were several layers wrapping the body of Kaylee Anthony. Almost every single bone was eventually recovered. They found everything except two bones from one of Kaylee's toes. Casey found out that the body had been discovered thanks to a local news report on a television that happened to be on in the jail. She began crying. There is actually security footage of this I've read, but I haven't actually seen it. Apparently it's very low quality. You can't really make out too much besides her just sort of burying her head in her hands. A medical examiner named Dr. Utz Analyzed the remains and found that there were actually three strips of duct tape in the clump of dirt and leaves that Kaylee's skull had been embedded in. Kaylee's jaw was found intact, and he said that it was extremely, extremely uncommon for the mandible, which is the lower part of the jaw, to still be attached to the rest of the skull unless something had been holding it in place. Ashton took this to mean that the duct tape had been covering Kaylee's face before decomposition. Police got a warrant to search the Anthony house and they found many objects that were re- that were related to the crime scene, including the same brand of duct tape found at the scene of the crime, the same laundry bags used at the scene, blankets and bedroom furnishings with the same Winnie the Pooh design as the blanket found at the crime scene, and more. After Dr. Utz had completed his medical examination of the skeleton, Kaylee's remains were cremated. As you may have imagined, police were a bit interested in how Roy Cronk had just happened to stumble across this body multiple times. And as he tried to explain his story to them, there were a couple of inconsistencies, but at the end of the day, there was nothing that really seemed to indicate that Roy Cronk had done anything overtly wrong. In fact, he had really tried to report the crime as he was supposed to, and the police who handled it were incompetent, and this led to Kaylee's body not being discovered for many, many weeks longer than it should have. The two officers who came to investigate Kronk's initial call in August were both questioned about their failure to properly investigate a lead, and at least one of them was suspended and actually ended up resigning due to their negligence. Either way, Kronk was the point of much controversy and speculation. Investigators viewed him skeptically because he had clearly embellished a couple of aspects of the rediscovery of the skeleton. Jose Baez, would eventually go on to unethically spring a character assassination campaign against Kronk, dragging up vicious rumors from ex-girlfriends and other personal enemies that were completely unrelated to this, the discovery of Kaylee's remains. Bayes' defense team began suggesting that Kronk may have actually removed the skull from the swamp, hidden it in his home for a couple of months, and then brought it back to the swamp off of Suburban Drive a claim that ex- experts and anyone familiar with the case said was completely ludicrous this is an example of what i was alluding to earlier with jose bayez being kind of a slimy dude but bayez's rationale that he repeated and injected into the mainstream media was that how could it have gone unnoticed? How could these human remains have gone unnoticed for so long, especially so close to the Anthony home? I mean, that very area had been searched in detail months before, right? 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 Hey guys, you uh you remembered to search that swamp right behind the Anthony house, right? <clears throat> Yeah, no, they didn't. Due to miscommunication, the scale of the overall search, and severe weather conditions, the swamp off of Suburban Drive had not actually been carefully searched by investigators. And it was just a quarter mile away from the Anthony home. Do you remember that guy, Mellick, Officer Mellick, who was the homicide detective who was mentioned a couple of times in part one? Infuriatingly, one of Kronk's three initial phone calls to the sheriff's office in August made it all the way to Malik, but Malik assumed that the area had already been searched and brushed the lead off. So how did this happen? How could this extremely important, critical, obvious area be completely overlooked? One of the issues was that law enforcement had delegated certain search tasks to volunteer organizations. One of them was known as ECUSearch, search a group based out of Texas that supposedly is very experienced with recovering bodies and finding missing people in adverse environmental conditions. Obviously, there was a huge controversy over this. It was a massive embarrassment for law enforcement at the local, state, and federal level. A ton of people were outraged that this girl's remains could have gone undiscovered for so long, Uh, and there was a big snafu over whether the area had been searched at all because it was critical for Bayes to try to prove that it actually had been searched and that Roy Cronk had indeed moved the body, as he had claimed. Bayez tried to claim that over 100 echo search volunteers had searched the area and the body had not been found, but this was found to be untrue as Ashton and his colleagues made their, made their way through interviewing each of the searchers that Bayez had named as having combed through the area, it turned out that only one guy had actually claimed to have visited the swampy area off of Suburban Drive, and it wasn't even part of a proper search. He had been drinking at a sports bar, and it was 3 o'clock in the morning, and he just went to check it out, I guess. He did say that he didn't see a body, though. Ashton states that it's unclear if finding the body in August versus December would have changed the forensic aspect of the investigation at all. The body was fully skeletonized by August anyway, so it's not really possible to determine if finding it earlier would have resulted in having more evidence against Casey or against whoever had actually dumped the body in the swamp. As far as the physical remains go, the skeleton had no signs of trauma, meaning that there were no broken bones or fractures or anything like that. Because of environmental conditions, Kaylee's body could have skeletonized in as little as two weeks, according to the medical examiner who checked the body out. They tested the DNA in the bone marrow of the skeleton in order to verify who the body was, and it was absolutely that of Kaylee. Also, because they did test the DNA, they were able to determine that there was no way George Anthony or Lee Anthony were the father of Kaylee, and that's relevant because there are. Claims floating around out there that perhaps there was some sort of incestuous relationship taking place in the Anthony household at some point. After the discovery of the body, the prosecution decided to reverse its previous decision and pursue the death penalty against Casey. The main driving factors in this decision were that Kaylee was a child and her death seemed to have been premeditated, in their opinion. So, let's get to some of the theories regarding how exactly Kaylee lost her life and ended up in that swamp off of Suburban Drive just behind her family's house. Let's hear the prosecution's theory first. They argued that Kaylee had had duct tape placed over her nose and mouth and had been suffocated while being chemically restrained with chloroform. When Jeff Ashton first explained this in court, and went into detail about why a crime of this nature warranted the death penalty, Casey initially looked furious, but her defense attorney, Jose Beas, whispered something to her, and she quickly started crying and burying her head in her hands while Ashton continued... Once the case was eventually brought to trial in 2011, the defense would argue that Kaylee had drowned accidentally, and that her grandfather, George Anthony, found the body and disposed of it and then took measures to use Casey as a scapegoat. Whether George Anthony placed the body in the swamp off of Suburban Drive himself, or if Roy Cronk somehow acquired the body and then placed the evidence there later all on his own... Is never clarified. There's a lot of problems with that theory. Um, but in a weird way, I think that it is a little bit closer to the truth than the prosecution's claim that Kaylee was intentionally suffocated with duct tape and chloroform. There's all sorts of other theories floating around out there. There's plenty of websites that discuss the Kaylee Anthony. And Casey Anthony Case. If you're looking for other theories, there's no shortage of people offering their opinions on a forum that I particularly enjoy. On the popular website reddit.com, there is a sub-forum called r unresolved mysteries, and I frequent it quite a bit. I find really interesting stories on there, and I've even found some topics for The podcast on there. There's a series about the Casey Anthony story that was done by a user with the username History Mystery. And I've actually been communicating back and forth with that individual a little bit while researching this podcast and eliciting different theories and opinions about what occurred. And anyway, they, uh, they submitted a really detailed write-up of the Casey Anthony case, and it's essentially a lengthy explanation of why George Anthony was probably involved from the beginning, and that he actively lied to police throughout the investigation. It has some similarities to the story that the defense used during the trial, but it tries to fill in more of the plot holes, if you will. So I would suggest checking that out. It's a really interesting write-up, even if you don't necessarily agree with all of it. It offers an explanation from a perspective that is a bit more sympathetic to Casey. If you want to check out the series, just go to the sub-forum called r slash unresolved mysteries on Reddit. And if you type Casey Anthony in the search bar, the series comes up. It's like one of the most highly upvoted series of all time on that particular subreddit and I'll put a link for that up on on the website too after I get this podcast uploaded. As far as what I personally think happened, I don't know if we'll ever find the true answer. I think Casey is the only one who knows what really occurred that afternoon on June 16th, 2008. But my gut suspicion is this. On the afternoon when Kaylee was last seen alive, she was seen leaving with Casey, who was allegedly going to work at her job at Universal Studios. Of course, we know Casey was unemployed at this point in time. George saw her leaving the house around 1 p.m. that day. Casey drove off and may have just done a couple of laps around the neighborhood as she waited for George to leave. When she was sure that George was gone, she went back to her parents' house. And once there, she did what young people do. She got online and used her computer to update her MySpace page and send messages to her friends on AOL Instant Messenger. We know this because of computer records that were later discovered during the investigation. Whatever she was doing, she was temporarily not paying attention to Kaylee at one point. And during this time, Kaylee managed to get into the backyard and unfortunately managed to climb into the above ground swimming pool where she accidentally drowned. This doesn't mean that Casey was a negligent mother, an evil mother. It just means that she made a very tragic mistake that resulted in the death of her daughter. However, the way she chose to handle this situation once she discovered what had happened is reprehensible. Perhaps she panicked. Perhaps she believed that she could get away by lying and fabricating stories and not taking responsibility for the death of her daughter. But in any case, Casey decided that it would be best to hide the body. So she wrapped Kaylee in her blanket and then again in a couple layers of trash bags and put the body in the trunk of the white Pontiac. She drove off and attempted to figure out what to do with the body, but she wasn't aware of how quickly it would begin to decompose in the Florida summer heat. Casey would go on to return to Suburban Drive and discreetly leave the body in the swamp herself. This is backed up by the fact that a neighbor saw her at the house on June 18th. Maybe Casey thought that her story about the babysitter kidnapping Kaylee would explain things away and prevent her from having to be brought to justice for this accident that had spiraled out of control. So she spent the next couple of weeks trying to forget what had happened. She went out and partied at nightclubs. She hung out with her boyfriend, Tony she didn't ever attempt to do the right thing. This may sound far-fetched or abnormal to you, and it should, because I don't think that Casey Anthony was necessarily a normal person. I think that, as I discussed a bit in part one of this series, she is not mentally well, and this is evidenced by her constant lying her theft from friends and family, and her other antisocial behaviors. As far as the chloroform goes, I think that perhaps the levels found in the trunk of the Pontiac were actually a byproduct of household cleaners that Casey had used in an attempt to rid the vehicle of the smell of decomposition. Those are just my general thoughts, and Of course, there are many things that we unfortunately do not know about what happened that day, June 16th, and furthermore, what occurred over the ensuing 31-day period. What we can be sure of is that a two-year-old child lost her life that summer, and in the media frenzy that surrounded her death, her memory was ironically overshadowed by the spectacle so rest in peace kaylee marie anthony born august 9 2005 died june 2008 Even after Kaylee's body was found, George and Cindy refused to believe that Casey was involved in her death. Cindy would go on to say in a deposition in August of 2009 that she had made the chloroform computer searches by accident while researching if chlorophyll and plants was making her dogs sick. A few weeks after Kaylee's remains were found, George Anthony attempted suicide in January of 2009. On January 22nd, around 8.30 in the morning, George left his house in Chickasaw Park with several bottles of prescription pills and photos. He was found the next day in a hotel in Daytona Beach, which is about an hour drive away from Orlando. He had written a six to eight page long suicide note apologizing to Cindy for being a bad husband and stating that he wanted to be with Kaylee. Also in the suicide note, he lamented not doing more to find Kaylee. He wrote, I sit here falling apart because I should have done more. She was so close to home. Why was she there? Who placed her there? Why is she gone? Why? Ashton wrote in his book that while George had initially been cooperative with police, even working against Casey at certain points, after his suicide attempts, he became extremely non-cooperative with investigators. does it for part two of the Down Home Fear series on Casey and Kaylee Anthony. Part three, the final part of the series, will cover the trial and its aftermath. I am not planning on doing a blow-by-blow of the trial and getting bogged down in legal proceedings. That's just not what I think the focus of DHF should be. It'll be more of a highlight reel with emphasis being on why Casey was able to get off with such a light sentence. Join the group on Facebook, follow me on Twitter at DownHomeFear. If you want to email me something, send it to DownHomeFear at gmail.com. Remember that information to supplement the episodes can be found at www.DownHomeFear.com. Be sure to tell your friends about the show. Recommend DHF to people who you know are into true crime, horror, weird stuff in general. If you like the show and would like to support us financially, consider making a donation. Go to downhomefear.com and click the support the show tab. This has been episode number 12 of Down Home Fear. My name is Keegan. Thank you so much for joining me.